That rousing music you just heard is from the finale of a piano concerto by Mexican composer Ricardo Castro, who lived from 1864 to 1907. It's actually in the form of a Polonaise, and it's on a new album called Conciertos Romanticos, featuring pianist Jorge Federico Osorio and also the Orquesta Sinfonica di Mineria with Carlos Miguel Prieto conducting. It's the June 2023 new release on CD Records, and when we have a new release, we always have a new Classical Chicago podcast. I'm Jim Ginsberg, producer of this album and founder and president of Sadie Records, and my guest on this podcast is, of course, pianist Jorge Federico Osorio. Hi, Jorge. Hi, Jim. Delighted to be here. I'm delighted to have you. So let me just give a quick bio. I think Sadie listeners hardly need an introduction at this point, this being your ninth album for Sadie, but nonetheless. Jorge Federico Osorio is a recipient of the prestigious Medalla Bellas Artes, the highest honor granted by Mexico's National Institute of Fine Arts. He's been lauded throughout the world for his superb musicianship, powerful technique, and vibrant imagination and deep passion. He's performed with the world's leading orchestras and collaborated with distinguished conductors ranging from Marin Alsop to Rafael Frubeck de Burgos, James Conlin, Bernard Haitink, Manfred Honeck, Carlos Miguel Prieto, including on this album. The list goes on. His concert tours have taken him to Asia, North, Central, and South America, and Europe. He's a regular performer with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, both downtown in Orchestra Hall and at the Ravinia Festival, and has performed recitals frequently in both locations as well. His recitals at Lincoln Center's Alice Tully Hall in New York have been highly acclaimed by the New York Times. He is a prolific recording artist. As I noted, this is his ninth album for CD, and Jorge is also recorded for the Artec, ASV, CBS, EMI, IMP, and Naxos labels. So pretty impressive uh, bio there. <laughs> I'd love for you to take a moment, Jorge, just to discuss your history as a performer, some of your career highlights, and also explain about your early education. Yes, thank you, Jim. It's been a long career. I'm already 72. <laughs> it's been a wonderful and rewarding career and adventure. I started music in Mexico City with my mother. My mother, she passed away recently. It seems recently, but she was the most inspired teacher and she really knew how to see the individual behind the method. She was a revered teacher in Mexico. So I started working with her until I was about 16. And I did some studies at the Conservatorio Nacional de Musica in Mexico. I wanted to go to Paris to continue my education with Bernard Flavigny, someone who had been teaching master classes every year for about a month or two months. So it was serious work, the most wonderful pianist and pedagogue. So I started in Mexico, then I went for a couple of years to Paris, and then after that I went to Moscow in 1970. I had been always drawn to the music making and the sound, especially of the old Russian school, and I wanted to be a little more involved in that. That's more or less for my formal studies. After that, of course, you enter competitions. Uh, You asked me about the highlights. There have been so many that it's difficult to pinpoint some, but uh, early competitions that I won, and then the competition I won in Rhode Island here, in 1974, which uh, the first prize was to play with the Warsaw Philharmonic and with uh, Vitor Rovitsky conducting. After they announced the first prize, the concert was the next day. So that was really highlight for me. And uh, luckily, Maestro Rovitsky then invited me to play with him the Brahms first piano concerto with his orchestra in Warsaw and in other cities. Other highlights have been my connection with Chicago. It's been incredible. It's like a dream almost, because when I was growing up in Mexico, I grew up with the Fritz Reiner recording with Gil Els and, of course, the Richter Leinsdorf of the Brahms number two and Brahms number one, I believe, also with Gil Els. And as a kid, I thought, gee, I would love to play with that orchestra. (laughs) You see, it happened many years after that, but somehow it was tremendous. So I have had most incredible experiences with the Chicago Symphony, the five Beethoven concerti that I did with uh, James Conlon at Ravinia, Rachmaninoff Liszt, uh, the Chavez Concerto, which we have on CD records. 
that I played with them downtown. Brahms one, twice, uh, Schumann, Mozart. So that's a tremendous highlight. Also going back a few years earlier, I had the fortune to play with conductors like Klaus Tenstedt. I played with him twice, Beethoven four and Brahms one. Also with Lorin Mazel, with Bernard Heiting and the Concertgebouw. And another highlight is how lucky can you get when I landed in Chicago and we started working together and recording with CD. At the very beginning, I thought it, this is lovely to have one recording out. But then uh, it's been growing steadily and we've been able to record the variety of repertoire. It's been really wonderful. Now, of course, you came to Chicago well before we started working together. Why did you choose Chicago? That's a good question. I didn't know about the weather. <laughs> With Silvana and my kids, at that time, we were living in London, and we wanted to come back to the perhaps live in America. And so I go very often to Mexico. I love playing there and teach there. At that time, I had started playing in the U.S., so my career started to have much more opportunities, and then all it started in Chicago. Texas and then Chicago. And then I came to play in the recital series downtown, then played Rachmaninoff, Rhapsody on Nothing by Paganini. That was my debut with the Chicago Symphony. And then I believe when we met, it's when I played Totentanz, yes. And then it just made sense for us to be in such a cultural and wonderful city that offers so much variety and enriches you, really. Somehow in Chicago, everything gets to be more personal. So that's something that we've always enjoyed. That's lovely. As I've noted, you have a long history of recording, including on CD, and you have albums covering music of Brahms, Schubert, Mussorgsky, a Spanish album, a French album, Debussy, of course. But there's also a thread where you've recorded a number of albums involving Mexican composers. You mentioned that incredible concerto by Carlos Chavez. You've also done a full album of music of Manuel Ponce and an album called Salón Mexicano, which includes both of the composers who are featured on this album as well, Ricardo Castro and Manuel Ponce. Why are these two composers so important to Mexican classical music and how revered are they in Mexico? Well, certainly Ponce is the most revered, really. First of all, because of his inspired music, it really touches the heart. It's something unique. And before Ponce, certainly Ricardo Castro, because at that time also he was known not only as a virtuoso, which really he was the first Mexican virtuoso pianist to emerge, but also as a composer making a dent. I believe some of the first symphonies written in the Americas, so I think he has one symphony and also an opera, uh, lots of piano music, very virtuoso. And of course, this piano concerto that was premiered in Europe in 1904, I believe. But he started the concerto in Mexico. He went to Europe to do some studies, but later on in life, not as early as Ponce. And somehow I feel that there's a connection between these two works. Let's compare how they start the second movement they choose the celli, legato and expressive and beautiful, and then Ponce does the same. And in a way, one of the works that I play by Ricardo Castro, the Canto de Amor, also somehow has that in Spanish we say vena. It's a vein, I don't know, would you translate that? They're both very dramatic, very virtuoso. They really go very well together. First, the Castro, because it was one of the first works written for piano and orchestra in the Americas. And Ponce's piano concerto, it's not that we had so much tradition of symphonic or, or concerti written for any instruments in Mexico, so that's how they're characterized. Well, the album opens with the Castro, and in his program notes, Jose Maria Alvarez dates the piece as having been written between 1885 and 1887, and identifies it as the first contratante piece for piano written by a Mexican or Latin American composer. Sounds like a pretty big deal to me. Actually, it's a big deal. And curiously enough, if you think about McDowell's piano concerto, he completed it, if I'm not mistaken, in 1885. Yeah, so right around the same time. So, yeah. 
I don't think Castro and Maldonado were, were in, in touch with each <laughs> other. Let's do something similar. I think historically, it's so interesting how it worked out. You know, in fact, there was apparently a concerto by one Otis B. Boys, who I know nothing about, written 10 years earlier. Yeah. But the first notable American concerto is the McDowell D minor. And as you mentioned, it's written at the same time. So is it a little bit surprising that this musical development in Mexico tracks so closely with development here? I don't know. And I wish I had a better explanation for that, how things develop artistically with everything that was going in the country politically, and it will remain, I guess, a mystery uh-huh. <laughs> for me, because if you think about the Concierto Romantico of Ponce, when he premiered it, the Mexican Revolution had started already, and yet we still have these European traditions, and I'll point it out later in the podcast, the form of the concerto, of course, it has to do with the Listian in one movement. The style or the form, it's very similar. In the case of both these early Western Hemisphere concertos, the Castro and the McDowell, there is a heavy European influence. And you noted that Castro was educated in Mexico at this time. He had not had any European education, but I guess it's not surprising that what education there would be on this side of the ocean would essentially be European because there hadn't been really an American mm-hmm. sound or a Mexican sound or a Mexican school created yet. I think Ponce may get some credit for that, and we can talk about that later. And you also mentioned Liszt, and I was going to say, in his notes, Mr. Alvarez mentions other influences, but to my ear, this concerto does owe a debt to Liszt. Uh, Is that the way you hear it as well? Yes, very much to Liszt, especially Ponce. Both concerti are crowded with octaves and (laughs) gestures. And even, for instance, the very beginning, there's a comparison by the Pablo Castellano, someone who studied a little bit with Ponce, He was a Mexican pianist, and he was very interested in history as well. He compares the beginning of the list, B minor sonata. If you remember, the beginning, and the beginning of the piano concerto, it's It's more or less almost identical, the intervals and in feel, and it's so dramatic and so immediate. And yet, to me, there hadn't been a tradition of Mexican style, but to me, especially the Ponce, sounds so Mexican. Mm. Like we say in Mexico, even when Ponce was trying to be so European, like, uh, do you know what nopales is? Nopal? It's like the cactus. Ah. You can always feel the nopal because we eat uh, nopales in Mexico. <laughs> so in essence, the nopal is always present. <laughs> Great. Now, as you mentioned, it was later played and very well received in Europe. In fact, one of the early reviews there referred to its delirious Polonaise finale, which we heard a snippet of at the beginning of this podcast, and we'll hear more of it in a moment. Was Castro the first Mexican composer to be heard and accepted by critics in Europe? I guess he was one of the first, because I know for other pianists who went to Europe to study, but not to present their works as composers, so I would imagine he was really the first. When he premiered the piano concerto, his cello concerto was also premiered at the same time, which is a very interesting work also. The concerto in A minor is divided into three movements, and we'll key on the finale, as I mentioned. But before we get to that, let's talk a little bit about the first two. You mentioned already the cello's opening and the andante, but what else would you want to say about these two movements? The way Castro begins in A minor, very mysteriously, for me it's almost like opera, like a Verdian overture, that you really don't know what's Mm. going to happen. And he presents that same idea four times in the first movement insisting and he's searching for something and you never know before the piano comes the orchestra begins and then you have the soloist coming in always in a more declamatory and victorious work but before that the transitions the way he uses the harmonies you never know where is he's going to take you funny you mentioned that because one thing that I notice is that it happens four times in pairs and each pair the second time is in a higher key. I think that builds the drama. Exactly, yes. And also at the same time very virtuoso but also 
in a Liszt concerto, there's a moment where the piano is almost accompanying the clarinet very sweetly, very pianissimo, very dolce. And then when it repeats, it's a little higher with the flutes. Uh, the form is very interesting. I feel the opening of the second movement is where it gets really operatic with the line in the cellos. Absolutely. Something that I find about these two concertos is they just go with so much feeling. You feel that the composers are really pouring their hearts there. And the second movement of the Castro concerto, it's beautiful how they opening and how he hands that to the solo. It's, and it's like a big operatic. I always think of Carlos when I'm trying to phrase it as... <laughs> But then it gets very interesting because it very dramatic changes within the movement until the climax of the movement comes with a huge explosion of emotion and from the same theme before he tackles the Polonaise. Well, actually, I was going to note that one of your previous solo albums for Sadie, Salon Mexicano, contains shorter pieces by Castro and Ponce and also Felipe Villanueva. Five of the first ten pieces on that album are mazurkas. And, of course, here we have this exhilarating Polonaise. Why were these Polish forms so popular in late 19th and early 20th century Mexico? There was something with the Mexican society that in every house there had to be a piano. And also the music publishers were flourishing and they would get all the influence from Europe. Of course, the mazurkas, the polkas, waltzes, polonaise, and I guess everybody wanted to write and it was the thing to do. It just depended at what level. And of course, from that same period, we have wonderful composers like you mentioned, Felipe Villanueva. There are still many other composers that we have to discover, like Luis Jordá, Carrasco, El Ordui, Tomás León, Juventino Rosas, who wrote these walls that everybody thought of Viennese Strauss wrote. <laughs> Pardon my voice. But I mean, that got to be so popular, but it is written by a Mexican composer <laughs> from that time. And also, interestingly enough, Melesio Morales was a composer and piano teacher. He had a student, Guadalupe Olmedo, she was the first woman to graduate from the conservatoire in Mexico. And she also composed so lovely pieces. And interestingly enough, it's a, a string quartet, which I believe it was also one of the first written. It would be interesting to inquire about that. But yes, at that time in Mexico, composers and people, that's the way people used to communicate come and bring a new piece and all these composers and there was a interest in live concerts at that time people like Sarasate and uh, Eugene d'Albert and all, all these big names would come to Mexico I guess they would also promote other music and similarly the composers in the place would be very interested and there's an anecdote about Eugène d'Albert because one of the Mexican critics at that time, he wrote that, uh, yes, a very famed pianist, but uh, I don't think he's that good, actually. <laughs> and he, he actually wrote an article saying that I would take him on a piano duel. Uh. He wanted to confront him. <laughs> this is just to illustrate how the... Mexican milieu of for music was, I guess, very bubbly, very lively. So it must have been so interesting. And the use of these Polish forms, is that really coming via Chopin or were there other sources for those as well? I would imagine mostly via Chopin, yes. If you compare, we've also recorded many of the mazurkas by Ponce for Sedi and yes, they're his own mazurkas, and, but to me they all sound very Mexican. Yeah. We heard a bit of the Polonaise finale at the top of the podcast. I, I think it's fair to say that this is the hit tune of the album, the, the one you're going to go away humming. Certainly. It's very catchy and so lively. And the key, the A major, I think, shiny and it's all bubbly. There's not too much drama there. It's just a nonstop joy. Really. Joy, yeah. joy. Yes, exactly. Is there anything else you want to say about the movement before we hear some of it? The dedicatee was this pianist, uh, Karl Reinecke.
I think he was very pleased with the piano concerto. The only thing he said that he wished at the end, before the last score, that Castro could have made a, a bigger cadenza. But that's very personal. Well, we'll hear actually from the beginning of the moment. So here is about the first third of this brilliant, or as the critics called it, delirious polonaise finale of Ricardo Castro's Piano Concerto in A Minor, Opus 22, and it features my guest on this podcast, pianist Jorge Federico Osorio, with the Orquesta Sinfonica di Minería, conducted by Carlos Miguel Prieto. You just heard a portion about the first third of the finale of the Piano Concerto in A Minor by Ricardo Castro, written in the mid-1880s, the first piano concerto to come out of Mexico and Latin America. It was performed there on a new album on CD Records by pianist Jorge Federico Osorio with the Orquesta Sinfonica di Minería, conducted by Carlos Miguel Prieto. And we should mention a little bit more about those collaborators. The orchestra is really Mexico City's summer orchestra, much like the Grand Park Orchestra here in Chicago? Yes, exactly, yes. And their conductor, their music director, is Carlos Miguel Prieto. He was named 2019 Conductor of the Year by Musical America. He's been the music director of the Orquesta Sinfonica Nacional de Mexico, the Mexican National Symphony, Mexico's preeminent orchestra, since 2007. He's also been music director of the Louisiana Philharmonic since 2006. It was in 2008 that he was appointed music director of the Orquesta Sinfonica di Mineria that we're hearing on this album right now. This coming season, that is 2023-24, he will assume the music directorship of the North Carolina Symphony. He's known for championing Latin American music and new music in general, and has conducted over 100 world premieres by Mexican and American composers. He's also championed works by African American and other black composers, including Florence Price, Margaret Bonds, and Courtney Bryan. His recordings are numerous and have won accolades, including the Opus Classique, Gramophone's Critics' Choice, and two Grammy nominations. So I think it's fair to say that Prieto is really one of Mexico's most important conductors? Oh, definitely. Can you describe your relationship both with him and with this orchestra? Oh, with the Sinfonica and Mineria, I started playing with them many years ago with the founder, Jorge Velasco. Then Maestro Luis Herrera La Fuente took over. And actually, we have a few recordings that we did with him. 
Tchaikovsky First Piano Concerto and Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on Anything by Paganini. And I played many times with Maestro Herrera. And of course, since uh, Carlos Miguel took over, I've been uh, a regular there. <laughs> it was fantastic, really. I want to point out also that uh, with uh, Carlos Miguel, when the National Symphony toured in Europe, I was traveling with two concertos, the Ravel Left Hand Piano Concerto and the Ponce Concerto. So we played it in Brussels, in Stuttgart, at the Leipzig uh, Gewandhaus and Holland as well. So we love the concerto. I wanted to do it with him, absolutely. I guess I should also ask about your experience of these particular recording sessions. I note that previously for CD, you recorded the Carlos Chavez concerto with Prieto and the Mexican National Orchestra. The yes. How was this experience same or different from that previous experience? The thing is that we played it live, first of all, just for us to play. So I think that helped a lot when uh, the following day we came to do the recordings because that's exactly what I wanted, to have this sense of occasion, of freshness, as much as possible, like a live experience, so that the music would talk to the public directly. It was challenging, of course, but it was thrilling at the same time. Well, one difference for me, of course, is that with the Chavez, we actually received that recording fully produced from Mexico. Yes. We added some solo piano pieces, of course, that I recorded with you here, which we did on this album as well. And in this case, what I got was the raw takes, mm -hmm. still in multi-track format with take numbers marked in the scores. And then it was up to me to actually put together these concertos, I'm working with Sadie's great engineer, Bill Malone, who figured out how to mix all those tracks together yeah. to make the wonderful sounding recording we have. And that we got to collaborate on that too. That was a very different experience for me, but I really enjoyed having the opportunity to actually put together these concertos as opposed to, as wonderful as the other recording is, that kind of has already received. Exactly, yes. I remember in Mexico when we did the Chavez, I was working with the engineer it's very challenging <laughs> how to choose, what to choose. Now, at those uh, orchestral sessions uh, in Mexico, I understand that it was a bit of a family affair. Can you talk about who else was involved besides the regular producer and uh, recording engineer in, in those sessions? Certainly, with pleasure. The main recording engineer, Bogdan, Mexico, he's a Polish violist. And at the same time, at that time in Mexico City, my son, Santiago was visiting me. He's also a violist, a violinist, and also conductor. So I asked him to please help me to be in the cabin and listening. And uh, he's played many instances in Mexico in some orchestras. He has many friends at the Mineria Symphony. And they were all very delighted because, as I, they, they told me, he has such a keen ear. And then he tells them directly, and he knows what to ask and not waste time. It's a contrast because I don't mind mentioning this, but Bogdan, he sometimes to take to ask something from the orchestra, he would take a long time. <laughs> and sometimes they would make a joke about it. And Santiago was very direct and concise. So it was a tremendous help for me. And these concertos that are not often played and to have four set of years, it's, it was really a tremendous help. So this is for Santiago, my son. Mm. The album is divided into two halves, and the first is devoted to Castro and the second half to Ponce, and in each case there are solo pieces by each composer that's heard after their concertos. There are three in Castro's case and four in Ponce's, and those solo pieces were recorded here in Chicago at the Logan Center, and it was my real joy to produce them. And I should ask how a solo session like that, and I should note, it was one session for all seven pieces in a, in a relatively short day, too. <laughs> I got to tell you, it's a real pleasure. <laughs> you come so well prepared for these sessions. But how does that experience compare or differ from the orchestral sessions? Well, first of all, playing solo or playing with orchestra, it's very different. Also, with the sessions with the orchestra at the concert hall, you're more worried about time pressing. Because sometimes you have to stop because you have to rest. They have to retune the piano. The orchestra has time to take off. And in that respect, it's more intimate. I'm not saying that it's easier to play 
less notes. <laughs> Sometimes it's tricky and it's, it would be the opposite. But it's, as I say, I approach every time I come to the studio with orchestra or with a solo repertoire, just try to focus on the music, not to be at ease and feeling comfortable. Mm because the result might be very boring and that's not <laughs> what we want. We want really to be alive, to live the music. And you said having the live performances first really helped with that. Yes, certainly. Because sometimes you go in and you see things that this could work, this could not work. And working with Carlos that way, he's so flexible. I can do anything. He'll be there with me. It's fantastic. And also the orchestra, they were so happy to do it and so well disposed that it, everything counts. Mm -hmm. And of course, looking at those scores as I was working on them, I noticed that there were two sets of take numbers. And so it seems that you did record with the orchestra, but then you had time later to do the longer solo passages and of course the cadenzas again. Yeah. Uh, and so that was a little bit more relaxed at that point. Not at all, because oh. they had a dayline. Oh, they were day you were for, still on the clock. For, for to close the concert hall. Ah. So we had to rush the orchestra. Oh, wow. And then I could do it. Uh, yes, but by then we almost had everything. It was just details here and there. That mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it was <laughs> interesting for me editing because I used a mix of the earlier and the later and then those solo passages, depending on which seemed best to me. Yes. And then, of course, when we work back here in Chicago, uh, you could take all the time you want, but like I said, you come so well prepared, we rarely need more than a couple of takes of each piece or passage. So that's a real privilege for me as a producer. Now, the solo pieces on the Castro half of the album are his Berses, Opus 36, the Canto de Amor, and Plant, Opus 38, number two. Why did you choose these particular pieces? You know, they're very much in the Castro style, but much more intimate, certainly the verses and the plant. I also wanted to show the way he could express himself with the, as big a gestures on the piano concerto in his Canto de Amor. And also it made sense since it's a concierto romantico, we're calling it, the album is Conciertos Romanticos. So I included the Ponce's Romanza de Amor. Mm -hmm. And the Canto de Amor, I thought, first of all, I saw the title and then before choosing, I read through the music and I really loved it. It's a very beautiful and very pianistic, very brilliant. It's all very expressive music, but I wanted that contrast from the end of the concerto and then going to these verses almost in a naive way, you know, so transparent of like trying to clean up a little bit your ears for mm from all this orchestral <laughs> extravaganza. <laughs> I noticed, by the way, even the Canto de Amor was originally published as Chant d'Amour. Is there a reason that Castro favored these French titles for his pieces? Well, the French influence was tremendous in Mexico. Before the Mexican Revolution, we had this dictatorship, uh, Porfirio Diaz. Everything from France had to come to Mexico. Hmm. And it was sort of a tradition, like... Uh, people in certain circles uh, speaking French and uh, Chant d'Amour and I guess he thought maybe it's more poetic but it's as poetic in Spanish <laughs> Canto de Amor but uh, also plant uh, just a few notes it's very tender but at the same time planting it's troublesome in your inner soul most intimate and his notes Mr. Alvarez refers to it as a song without words yes I think it suits the commentary well, as you mentioned, the Berceuse, the lullaby, is a great contrast with the concerto, especially with its brilliant finale, which is why it's the first thing you hear on the album after the concerto, and it's what I'd like to play an excerpt from now. Anything you, else you want to say about it before we hear some? Uh, let yourself rock by this uh -huh. Berceuse. I yeah. think it's, you never know where it's going to take you. All right, well, this is about the first two-thirds of the Berceuse Opus 36, number one, of Ricardo Castro, as performed by Jorge Federico Osorio.
You just heard the Berceuse, Opus 36, number one, of Ricardo Castro, a Mexican composer, uh, performed on the new album Conciertos Románticos by pianist Jorge Federico Sorio. And if you like what you're hearing, and I can't imagine that you aren't, you can find the album on the Sadie Records website. That's C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org. Or if you want to buy physical CDs other than from us directly, you can find it on Archive Music, Amazon, other stores. If you prefer to stream your music, of course, it's on all the streaming sites from the new Apple Classical or Apple Music or Spotify or Tidal. You know, wherever you like to hear your music, you should be able to find this album. And I really hope you want to check the whole thing out, especially after listening to this podcast. Before we jump ahead a generation, any final thoughts about Castro in this collection of pieces? I just want to say that I'm thrilled that this project came into fruition. Not because it's a project, because it deserves to be heard, this uh, piano concerto. This music is beautiful, and I'm sure people would really love it. Well, I, I certainly agree with that. In the run-up to the album release, which the official release date is June 9th, and that's when it'll actually become available in those streaming sites, although you can pre-order the CD in advance of that, of course. But in the run-up, we are making the Polonaise available in some formats in advance of the concerto because it is just such a catchy and wonderful uh, it is. movement. Hope you'll check that out. But we are now going to jump ahead to one generation. Can you give us a quick overview of Manuel Ponce's achievements as a composer, really of both concert and popular music? Well, Ponce, as we talked about, and he's the most beloved Mexican composer, I would think. As I had mentioned, Ponce, he wanted really to be a serious pianist. And actually, there are some recordings that he did that are very interesting at a much later age. His interest certainly took him to Martin Krauss in Berlin. He pursued his studies there. And at the same time, Martin Krauss had an assistant, which was a, a very young Edwin Fischer. I'm sure Fischer and Ponce got along very well. And it must have been a fascinating time. At the same time, of course, Ponce was composing all the time and continued studying composition in Italy. I believe at one time he studied with someone that had been a teacher of Puccini. Mm. Very interesting, always, just to picture this young man from Mexico. And this is something I also wanted to mention before. Both uh, Castro and Ponce are from about the same region within Mexico, which is interesting because they're both very romantic souls that lived in a place where... What region? It was like Zacatecas, uh, Aguascalientes, a little upper from the center of Mexico, these two Aguascalientes and Zacatecas very nearby. It's just a coincidence. It's colorful. The mining industry at that time also was booming, gold and silver. Silver from Mexico, it was, I think, 90% of the world production crazy anyway coming back to Ponce when he came back after 1907 he continued composing and by then politically things were very unstable in Mexico the Mexican revolution in 1910 I can't imagine it's not that he in his uh, letters mentions anything about how he felt but we know that at one point he took the decision and left for Cuba he spent uh, from 1915 to 1917 in La, La Habana. Did the revolution affect his music in addition to his travel? Uh, I don't think so. Somehow the music remained the same. After the revolution, when he decided to go to Europe in 1925, he wanted to change completely his style, and he did. And it's when he went and studied with Paul Ducat. Going back to the concerto that he premiered in 1911, with another composer conducting, Julian Carrillo, also a very interesting personality for Mexicans. As we were talking about, it's very Listian in form, very beautiful, very expressivo, compact, very virtuoso. In his notes, Mr. Alvarez calls Ponce the initiator of the musical nationalist movement in Mexico. Is Ponce a hero in Mexican music the way Chopin is for Polish music? Yes, I think there are some parallels there. But also, he studied a lot and he traveled a lot, a little bit like Bela Bartok did. 
he harmonized so many popular tunes and, and of course, many original tunes like uh, Estrellita that we have on one of our <laughs> albums in CD. Probably the best known piece. The best, no- <laughs> yes. It got to be so popular that people a little bit forgot about his <laughs> his other works. Did he have an issue with that, the way, say, Rachmaninoff did with his Prelude in C-sharp minor? Well, for one thing, I know that he never got paid any royalties. Yeah. <laughs> Let's say. But for, I mean, Rach- Rachmaninoff got really sick of people asking him to play that piece. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I don't think it was as much as Rachmaninoff's. But I wanted to mention that he was constantly composing for piano. So much music and still that has to be played and discovered. But at the same time, he forged a very close friendship with uh, Andres Segovia. And that's what really helped him very much to be better known. Because Segovia got a personal interest that he loved his music. He played it everywhere. And were those transcriptions or did Ponce start writing for Uh, the guitar directly? Yeah, directly to the guitar. Yes. At that time also, and people like Stokowski were interested in his uh, orchestral works. People like Eric Kleiber, he used to come fairly frequently to Mexico. And when I say very frequently, he would come and stay for, uh, let's say, two months or more. I remember my father telling me that when he staged Fidelio, I think he had 20 rehearsals and things like that. He was certainly the friendship with Segovia was uh, very important and it meant a great deal. What I also found out that uh, Ponce, I would make it a comparison with Manuel de Falla, like the, in the personal, the orderly way they would uh, go th- through his daily life. But he also loved to entertain. And recently I went to the Ponce Museum in Zacatecas and they have a tablecloth. It's signed by so many people, Stravinsky, Claudio Arrau, Stokowski, of course, Piatigorsky, you see all these names, and it's fascinating how he, he also loved doing that. Now, you've recorded complete albums of Ponce's music for CD and also for the ASV label. Can you talk about your personal relationship with Manuel Ponce's music over the years? Well, it grew out of interest and out of love. It's just starting reading his music and getting enamored with so many of the smaller pieces at the beginning. Later on, the interest for the concerto came, and then I learned it, and actually I premiered it in London, probably the first time it was played with my friend Enrique Diemeke. And by the way, many, many years ago at the Grand Park Festival, we also performed it. It was a very easy decision, nothing that it was like, uh, I have to do this, or because I'm Mexican, I should do that. No, it's just because of the beauty, and then I love his music, and I love to play it, and people really enjoyed it. Now, you've actually recorded the piano concerto once before. Why did you decide you wanted to make a new recording of it now? Yeah, I think it's a very pertinent question. I was quite happy with that first recording, but I somehow, uh, over the years... I felt that there were certain elements that I couldn't make really as clearly and as poignantly. That's why when the occasion came, and this was so long ago. It was about, what, 30 years ago now? Yeah, thereabouts. Yeah. So when the opportunity arrived, I thought this, I would love to do it again, and I'm so glad we did it. Well, me too. Mm. <laughs> now, the title, Romantico, is that something Ponce gave it, or did it get that later on, and if so, how? <laughs> That's a good question, Jim. I don't know. A few years uh, before the piano concerto, he composed this trio romantico, and I believe that was his title. Trozos Romanticos is a title that he uses very often. And actually, I saw a photo of the facsimile, and it's a concert, like in German. So I don't know exactly when or how it was that it got to be the Concierto Romantico. But I think it suits, mm-hmm. it's like a, when yeah. you say the emperor or maybe a publisher, I don't know exactly. Maybe we'll know later on. <laughs> well, the concerto was written pretty much exactly a quarter century after Castro's concerto. And unlike the Castro, it doesn't have separate movements marked in the score, but it's clearly in three sections that are played without pause, a taca, in other words. It has an opening allegro appassionato, a very expansive andante amoroso, which includes the big cadenza, and then an allegro that is actually marked finale in the score, even though it's not indicated as a separate movement. 
And the piece, and I think you alluded to this earlier, opens with really an explosion of F-sharp minor. It's even more dramatic than the opening of the Castro Concerto. How does this set the tone for the piece? Well, it's immediately, it's called to something so important, so poignant, so passionate, because that's also the title, Allegro Appassionato. And the key, F-sharp minor, which Ponces uses uh, quite frequently, it's so romantic in a way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also wanted to point out that it's for s- such a compact concerto, bearing in mind that I'm sure he had list as an idea also behind. Yes, it has a, the very big cadenza, but after the first tutti, there's also quite a dramatic cadenza when the piano takes over, which some people don't play actually. Mm. Yes. We can't imagine that. Yes, <laughs> yeah. No, I think that the story goes that at the last time that Ponce played this piano concerto, I don't think his health was as good. And I believe that at that time he decided, I'll skip, or maybe he hadn't practiced. I don't know. I don't know the <laughs> circumstances. He decided not to play the cadenza. And someone else took the liberty of saying, well, then the cadenza, uh, that's it, where it's never going to be played again. But I think it suits uh, for the form and for the character. I think it definitely has to be there. You've been mentioning Liszt, and Mr. Alvarez writes that the concerto is closer to the German tradition than to French music. But I got to say, I hear a lot of Chopin in the piano writing here, much more than I did in the Castro. How do you feel about this? Certainly in the intimate moments, a lot of still of a Chopin influence. But I think the German tradition wins it over. As I was telling, it's uh, so crowded with octaves and passages, loud passages, very dramatic, very Listian. If you think about the Chopin piano concertos, hardly, he hardly uses octaves in his uh, piano concertos. I would go for the German tradition and more from the Listian tradition, yes. Okay, well, before we hear an excerpt from this very dramatic first movement, let's talk a little bit about the rest of the concerto. Can you say a few words both about that wide-ranging andante, including the tour de force cadenza and the dance-like finale that follows it? Yeah, exhilarating finale, but also so interesting the way in the second movement there's uh, this part before the recapitulation comes, this andantino, in five beats, which is also a a little bit naive and very beautiful, very transparent, and in five. And it's so interesting how he thought about it. So it's sometimes harder for me to talk about Uh the music, how to describe it. It makes uh, the Ponce as well as the the Castro day. The culmination is with this tremendous uh, virtuoso octaves and then the short coda that it's so dramatic. Well, getting back to the first movement now, and we're going to hear an excerpt, which is the part that leads into the big orchestral restatement of the bold F-sharp minor opening theme we've been talking about. This excerpt starts with some of that more intimate piano writing that makes me think of Chopin. Here's a portion about three minutes from the first movement of the piano concerto number one, the concerto titled Romantico by Manuel Maria Ponce as performed by pianist Jorge Federico Soria with the Orquesta Sinfonica di Minería conducted by Carlos Miguel Prieto.
You just heard a portion of the first movement of Manuel Ponce's Piano Concerto Number no. 1, the Romantico, as performed by Jorge Federico Osorio with the Orquesta Sinfonica di Mineria, conducted by Carlos Miguel Prieto. You picked four solo pieces by Ponce to follow the concerto, and they are, in this order, Arruladoro Mexicana, Gavota, Romanza de Amor, and Intermezzo Number no. 1. Why did you choose each of these, and what aspects of Ponce's art does each one illustrate? Similarly, like uh, with the Castro, the Arrolladora comes after that dramatic finale of the Ponce Concerto. Arrolladora so tranquilo, and it's also based on a Mexican song, just as a contrast and, and very soothing in a way, and they're all it's transparent. And I think it's a beautiful melody. The other four pieces as well, the Gavota, probably one of the best and the most played pieces by Ponce in Mexico. And of course, it's such a popular, it's so beautiful. Not an easy piece to play. Actually, none of them are. If yes, they should sound easy, but they're, they're, they're wonderful. I should know it's La Rancherita. Is La Rancherita, yes. That's the song that Arrolladoro is, is based on. Yeah. And there is a wonderful nostalgia to the Gavota. We've talked a little bit about the Romanza. Yeah, Romanza de Amor, which actually they said that it was like a love letter to his wife, Clema. Right. And of course, the album ends with this intermezzo, which Mr. Alvarez refers to as one of the great little jewels, not only of Ponce's repertoire, but of international pianism. And it's a favorite encore piece of many pianists, including Lang Lang. Yes, <laughs> Lang Lang and uh, Cipran Katsaris as well. And I hope that uh, many people will get interested, not just in the intermezzo. I'm thrilled that famous pianists like that play the intermezzo, but I just want to say that they don't have to add up anything because they both do add notes here and there and extra chords and extra arpeggios. <laughs> well, I want, in fact, I wanted to talk about the interpretation because I've, I've listened to various performances and there's a really wide range of yes, interpretations yes, of this. Yeah. I mean, it's a two and a half minute piece, but Mr. Alvarez in his notes points out that it's structured in a sonata form with introduction, two subsequent themes, an exposition that leads to a cadenza, mm -hmm. a re-exposition, and I note that he uses that word, not recapitulation, because it's yeah. the same yes. notes, and then the short final coda. Yeah. And what's interesting to me, besides just the different approaches in terms of tempo and, and whatnot, is that it really puts it to the pianist for how to distinguish the first time through and the re-exposition, and I notice a lot of pianists, including you, vary the right-hand, left-hand relationship from the first time to the repeat. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I think sometimes it's just a matter of going back and read correctly the score. All these things that you're referring to, Ponce writes them so distinctively and so clearly. We use all this just to make the music come alive. And like I said, I've heard it done numerous ways, sometimes very straight. And sometimes, and Long Long would be in the uh, other extreme, yeah. stretched out, yes. almost beyond recognition. Yes. How do you find the right balance? First of all, I think should be, I mean, the way I feel it, I think that you can vary it a lot, actually. And sometimes I played it as an anchor. Sometimes the tempo is much more forward, not so much rubato. It really depends. It's so beautifully written. It's like a Brahms intermezzo that you would take a different tempo almost every time. What more can I say? I would go to comment that uh, Arthur Rubinstein made about Chopin's music that he usually would write and maybe sometimes his main concern was not to add more and more but on the contrary to take what's not necessary and I find that in this intermezzo was there for a long time. I don't know that Ponce wanted to add some more to it. He could have certainly so I think it's just perfect as it is. <laughs> Great. Well, then let's hear that then. This is the intermezzo number one of Manuel Ponce as performed by Jorge Federico Osorio.
you just heard, Intermezzo Number no. 1, very popular piece, often played as an encore of Manuel Maria Ponce. It is the encore, or at least the last track, on the new album, Conciertos Romanticos, by pianist Jorge Federico Osorio, who's my guest on this podcast. And I will remind you once again that the album will be released on June 9, at which point you can find it on all the streaming sites and it becomes available for shipping. You can pre-order it, of course, in advance, whether off Amazon.com or directly from the Sadie Records website, C-E-D-I-L-L-E records.org or Archive Music or wherever you like to get your albums. So I hope you want to check it out. Jorge, what would you like people to take now from hearing the album as a whole? A sense of uh, discovery or rediscovery, especially with the Castro, which is the novelty here. As I mentioned, the Ponce has been played before, but still needs to be heard more but especially the Ricardo Castro. As the producer, I enjoyed working on it, and I'm still enjoying listening to it now. It's really a pleasure. Let me ask what's coming up for you this summer and in the upcoming concert season. Well, I have a very exciting summer. I have a recital coming at the Ravinia Festival, very challenging program. It's uh, Brahms and Beethoven, just the Brahms, the four ballads, Opus 10. Then I played the Brahms Handel, variations and then on the second half i play beethoven opus 109 and opus 111. oh wow somehow it's all centered more or less on the variations because you know the end of 109 it's a beautiful set of variations and of course the last movement of the 111 which is absolutely incredible I agree. And people should note that uh, concert is on June 28th. 28th, and, yes. And you can go to ravinia.org and purchase your seats. I'll certainly mm-hmm. be there. <laughs> yeah. After that, I'll be going to the Aspen Festival. I'm playing Beethoven Five, The Emperor with uh, Robert Spano. I have also a recital there in the area. I have also coming up concerts in, in Flint with Symphony with my friend uh, Dimeke, Enrique Dimeke. Then to festivals in Mexico, in Guanajuato, and then in Morelia. And also, looking ahead, some uh, chamber music, piano quintets in in Germany. A few things to look forward, certainly. Sounds terrific. I look forward to hearing the ones that are here, of course. And I'm also thinking of uh, reviving a piano concerto that was written for me by uh, Alexis Aranda. It's a young Mexican composer, so there's many things to do. Well, that's terrific. Well, we always end these podcasts with a question about what makes Chicago's classical music scene so special. And you actually talked a bit about this uh, at the beginning of the podcast in more general terms about the audiences and everything. Uh, Given the repertoire on this album, I'd love to ask for your perspective on classical music in the Mexican and the wider Latino community here in Chicago. Well, in Chicago, there has been the interest to hear this repertoire. As I mentioned, I played at the Grand Park, the Ponce Piano Concerto, with the CSO downtown. We played the Chavez Piano Concerto, which I think it was the very first time that they performed it. My first recital at the Orchestra Hall also, I included a lot of music by Ponce. You know, the fact that CD is here and that we've been able to have all this variety of composers and create this interest for this music has been absolutely wonderful. Great. Well, thank you for this wonderful album and for being my guest on Classical Chicago. My pleasure, Jim. And thank you all for listening.